I cannot for my soul remember how, when, or even precisely where I first became acquainted with the Lady Lygia. Long years have since elapsed, and my memory is feeble through much suffering. Or perhaps I cannot now bring these points to mind, because, in truth, the character of my beloved, a rare learning, a singular yet placid cast of beauty, and the thrilling and enthralling eloquence of her low musical language, made their way into my heart by paces so steadily and stealthily progressive that they have been unnoticed and unknown. Yet I believe that I met her first and most frequently in some large old decaying city near the Rhine. Of her family, I have surely heard her speak. That it is of a remotely ancient date cannot be doubted. Those are the first few lines of Edgar Allan Poe's Lygia. And you're listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. You're at hppodcraft.com. I'm Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And we are back from Providence, Rhode Island. That's right. We just uh, were there just last weekend enjoying the city. It's really beautiful. I still have a, a photo of it up on my computer as a screensaver. <laughs> oh, yeah. It was such a great time. We met so many awesome people, saw yeah. so many beautiful places. And it was really neat to be where Lovecraft was inspired and see those those buildings that got him to write. We saw the Shunt House. We saw the Ward family home, you know, and a bunch of other things. It was really just an amazing time. Yeah, it was great how the city really plugged into the whole thing and got involved. You know what? We're going to do coverage of the actual entire convention. This is the whole reason that people raised money for us to go. So we're going to release that in a couple of weeks. Who was our uh, reader that we heard there? Oh, that is one of our favorites here on the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. John Hancock. Hey, John. Thanks for coming back. He is outstanding, and I want to thank him personally for just being awesome. You know what I want to talk about, Chris? What? Cryptocurium.com. Oh, Cryptocurium.com, our sponsor this week. That's right. I am very happy that they're our sponsor because there's some absolutely outstandingly cool stuff going on over there. Well, would you please explain to me what Cryptocurium does? Cryptocurium sells limited edition statues, engravings, all sorts of uh, kind of art objects that are related to Lovecraft and his work. Yeah, and lots of other artifacts as well, kind of inspired either by the stories or just ideas from the stories. One of my favorite pieces that they have is the Nyarlathotep idol, which is sort of yeah. very organic, looks like an old Egyptian piece, but it's got this cool kind of pharaoh head with all these tendrils coming out of the face. It's yes. really, it's a really cool piece. It's yeah. really cool. We ran into uh, Jason who runs Crypto Curium yeah. while we were at the convention and he gave us some items to give away. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I've been sitting here. One of them is that black pharaoh idol. Uh, yeah. The other is a big Cthulhu idol. 
Yeah. And it's been so tough for me just not to break them out, you know, <laughs> just say, yeah, we tried to get that contest together and it just didn't happen. So it didn't I, happen. I sorry, man. To stay here. I don't know what. Yeah, I don't know what happened. The contest just didn't work out. So sorry, these pieces are staying on our desk. The way that we're going to give them away, we figured we should do something kind of fun with it. So for the contest, what we're going to ask people to do is send us a picture of yourself or a loved one in your best Lovecraftian pose. Now, what does that mean exactly? It could mean a number of things. It could be you posed like a ghoul, you know, being all creepy and stuff. Or maybe, you know, the classic Cthulhu idol pose, which is, you know, you're kind of squatted down with your hands on your knees. <laughs> or maybe you just look like a character from one of them. Maybe it's a, yeah, oh, you look exactly. like an antiquarian, but you're holding a phone that goes into the ground or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Or or maybe you're just going insane from looking at a tome or something like that. Whatever. Yeah. It's up to you. To so you could be a monster. Out. You could be a human. It could be anything, but it's got to be Lovecraftian. It's got to be Lovecraftian. And send them up, put them on our Facebook page or okay. just email them to us and Chad and I will pick the best. We've got two two to give away, right? Yeah, we've got a Cthulhu Idol and a Black Pharaoh Idol. Right. So we're going to give you a month. At the end of the month, we'll, we'll announce the winners. All right. Well, that's thanks to CryptoCurium.com. So let's get back to this story, Lygia by Edgar Allan Poe. Now, we've been doing all sorts of Arthur Mack and we decided to just take a break. And we yeah. didn't really know until the last couple of days what we wanted to do. But, you know, if you're going to shake it up, Probably the best thing to do, go back to one of the classics, go back to Lovecraft's Biggest Influence. Yeah, it gets a, get a little Poe in. And I've had a little bit of Poe on the brain anyway, because while we were in Providence, we were at the Athenaeum where Poe was courting Sarah Helen Whitman. Yeah, she lived in Providence. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so we were, we were talking a lot of Poe while we were there. So I'm glad that we got the chance to come back and do some of it. Now, I've never read this one before. Uh, no, neither have I. Well, actually, um, I, I've read part of it because... This is the story that the poem, The Conqueror Worm, comes from. Yes. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And The Conqueror Worm was obviously, when I was in high school, I thought that was the greatest poem ever written. <laughs> you know? So it was an exciting surprise. Yeah. So what's going on so far? Basically, the setup is our unnamed narrator. Uh, he's infatuated with or was infatuated with this woman, Lygia. Now, there's a bunch of different pronunciations of how it could be. It could be Lygia, whatever. But this, this is how Vincent Price pronounces it in the film adaptation of the tomb of Lygia, which was a Roger Corman film. Right, right. I think that was the last one of the Poe movies that yeah, it was. The Corman made. But there's also, if you look on YouTube, there's also a full reading of this story by Vincent Price. What? Uh, if you, yeah, if you want to hear him pronounce everything in it. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty interesting. I was listening to some of it last night. And the language in this story is so pretty, kind yes. of over the top. It's a little flowery, I would yeah, say. That it takes somebody with some good, almost camp abilities to come in and really turn it out. I don't know if I'd call it camp, but our reader this week, John Hancock, he gives Price a run for his money. <laughs> the first <laughs> the first few programs of the story, like I said, are about Legia and mm -hmm. her beauty and her intelligence and her, her dark hair and her eyes. And he talks about how her skin is so pale and porcelain-like and marble-like, which made me think of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles stuff. And I was thinking, do you think that Anne Rice might have been inspired by Poe in some way? Oh, yeah, I wonder. <laughs> I think everybody who writes in any kind of uh, horror tradition has obviously been influenced by this stuff. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when I was reading that description, I was like, wow, that sounds like uh, Louis or uh, Lestat, you know? Yeah, like it's sure. Very, so she obviously borrowed probably from, from some of this. It's so overboard. I mean, how can anybody be this beautiful? Well, see, I don't know, because maybe she's not that beautiful. And he's at some point in the story, which we're kind of spoiling, she dies. Yeah. And I think maybe it's him sort of going a little nuts after she dies and maybe sort of blowing out his uh -oh. memory of her. <sighs> There's yeah. a lot of debate about this. We'll get to that at the end of this 
conversation. I wonder if she even exists, but yeah, we can we can talk about all these topics. Yeah. The thing that he kind of touches on is that she's so beautiful, it's almost repulsive because, you know, her beauty is so intense. Yeah. When he's describing her eyes, they're larger than a mortal's eyes should be. But you don't notice unless she expresses some kind of emotion and then it's somewhat, it seems even chilling to me a little bit. Yeah, he says uh, about her eyes, those eyes, those large, those shining, those divine orbs, they become to me twin stars of Leda, and I am to them devoutest of astrologers. <laughs> it's like, wow. <laughs> yeah, man, he's so into her. I really liked that, uh, the idea, because there are some, you know, if you look at models who have such extreme faces, mm -hmm. they're wonderful to look at, but in then a certain cast, they're kind of like, ugh. Yeah, I feel that way about Lily Cole. Do you know who she is? She's got red hair. She's got really big eyes and a little mouth. She almost looks like an yeah. anime character. Uh -huh. Yeah. She's one of those where it's like she's super beautiful or she's a freak. I can't tell. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what he's trying to articulate. In I think so. Yeah. I think so. There was also a, a, a phrase here. It's typical Poe in that it's just filled with clauses and kind of tough to get through. But he said... Uh, there is no point among the many incomprehensible anomalies of the science of mind more thrillingly exciting than the fact, never, I believe, noticed in the schools, that in our endeavors to recall to memory something long forgotten, we often find ourselves upon the very verge of remembrance without being able, in the end, to remember. I've never really heard anybody express that feeling before. Yeah, but that's a really, I understand that feeling. I've, that's a I've, really potent, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a very true thing. It connects to me very deeply, especially since I've been a father and I've lost a lot of sleep. I, I constantly feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, you're almost remembering it. You're I'm in a constant state of almost remembering a lot of things. And that's sort of where he's coming from in this story, too, where he doesn't remember where she's from. He knows he's met her family, but he can't really remember her family at all. He can't even yeah. remember her maiden name. Yeah. Which is kind of crazy, being that he's so crazy about her, but something about her and he also touches on this sort of metaphysical quality that she had and that she also was a teacher to him that she was really smart and really intelligent and she sort of um, opened up his mind to these metaphysical things yeah she's um as intelligent as she is beautiful and it's a weird intelligence it's strange that she should know as much as she does now one of the things that she says or that triggers to, to his memories. The, there's a quote at the very beginning of this by Joseph Glanville. Now, this is funny because this actual quote isn't really from Joseph Glanville. Uh, people have tried to find where this quote was written down, and it isn't. So Poe actually made up this quote and, and attributed it to Joseph Glanville. What he's trying to say when he is funny because it's in the beginning of the story, but then right. he also works it into the story. In line with what I was just talking about, about you, something that you can almost remember when he hears a certain note on a stringed instrument he can remember Lygia. Mm -hmm. It's like there are certain things that really remind him of her. Among innumerable other instances, I well remember something in a volume of Joseph Glanville, which never failed to inspire me with the sentiment. And the will therein lieth, which dieth not. Who knoweth the mysteries of the will with its vigor? For God is but a great will pervading all things by nature of its intentness. Man doth not yield him to the angels, nor unto death utterly, save only through the weakness of his feeble will. And that's just made up, huh? Yeah, that's, uh, well, I mean, Poe wrote it, so it's, I mean... <laughs> it's made up by Poe. It's made up by Poe, but I mean, you know, is Joseph Clanville any more legitimate than Poe, so... Well, no, that guy's nutty. I, I looked him up and did yeah. a little research on him. He's from the mid to late 1600s, an English guy, a writer, 
And it gets confusing when you read his biography because he's a religious guy that seems to be an advocate of the scientific method and skepticism. Mm -hmm. But he also got very into the supernatural and he wrote about witchcraft and how to identify it and who witches are. And, you know, Cotton Mather built on stuff that, oh, right. yeah, that yeah. he wrote for Wonders of the Invisible World. So his views are contradictory and a little bit confusing. But one thing I found really interesting about him is he was a big advocate of plain speaking. He didn't believe that speech should be overly ornamented so that the meaning is lost. Or that people should speak through metaphors. Instead, they should just say, you know, <laughs> what's on their mind. And it's funny that he winds up in the middle of this, yeah. of Poe's most, you know, loquacious stories. I mean, it's so extreme. <laughs> I found that ironic. It is. Or it unexpected. Is of, yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is ironic, isn't it? Oh, man, let's not open up that can of worms. Okay, sorry. But the sentiment of this is this idea that your will is what keeps you alive and once your will gives out. That is when a person dies. It has nothing to do with your physical state. It's your your will. But in this particular story, it has a almost supernatural connotation to it. Lygia, who I've already spoiled that she, mm -hmm. she's going to die here, with her will, or maybe somebody else's will, she's able to fight death. It put me in mind, as discussion of the will always does, of Schopenhauer. <laughs> Not to sound like a, I just sounded like such a college freshman, but the, you know, his idea that there was the intellect and the will and the will is the will to live. It's sort of the id. It's, it's the lizard yeah. brain, you know, it's going to will, it's going to get what it wants no matter what. And then we use our intellect to justify things that the will wants. Mm -hmm. Her will to live is so strong that it actually defies the laws of nature. Yeah, we think, well, maybe. Well, see, this is where things are going to, this story gets a little crazy. Yeah. Anyway, within the story at this part of it, he's talking about, they get married and she eventually takes ill. It, this leaves him devastated. But she doesn't, she's not quite dead yet in this part of the telling. She gets sick and, you know, she's going to die. He starts talking. This is something that I've, I've read about where he refers to being childlike in her presence, like mm -hmm. um, a child groping, uh, benighted. You know, when he talks about when she dies, he didn't know what was going on. Yeah. And, and he was looking at her with childlike confidence. There's also childlike perversity. Yeah. So there's this weird almost idolatry of her where mm -hmm. she's not human or she's above him in some way and yeah. he's looking up towards her which is a really bizarre thing to have i think in a intimate relationship mm -hmm. i mean i'm sure it happens obviously but yeah. in, in healthy relationships i don't think it does <laughs> well this is when i was thinking and uh, obviously there's no answer to it but i thought is lygia even real or does lygia represent an ideal that you have before you actually experience love or a real relationship. It could be this idea, you know, when you go through puberty and you lay around and you're just thinking about, I'm going to fall in love with this woman and all, you know, the way that you feel and the, it's just this complete idealization. Yeah. I mean, is it that he had that and then later he gets into a real relationship with a real woman? He tries to force her to be. Boy, I, I, I had not thought of that before, but that's, it makes a lot of sense. With the rest of the story, yeah. Kind of that almost vertigo idea, you know. He's trying to make her into right. Lygia, and Lygia doesn't even exist. I've read some some people's take on it, and I haven't heard that one yet. So maybe you've just mm -hmm. added some awesomeness to Poe scholarship. Yeah, I doubt it. <laughs> I don't think so. We should get to this poem because right. this has, when she dies, or as she's dying, yeah. he, uh, she had written this poem, actually. Oh, she wrote it? Yeah, the poem is by Lygia. And oh, he's, uh, I missed that. I thought he wrote it, and she, but she asked, she's dying, and she wants him to read the poem to her. Right, right. And, and he obeys her. So this is the poem in its entirety. Lo, tis a gala night within the lonesome latter years, 
An angel throng, bewinged, bedight in veils and drowned in tears, sit in a theatre to see a play of hopes and fears, while the orchestra breathes fitfully the music of the spheres. Mimes, in the form of God on high, mutter and mumble low, and hither and thither fly, mere puppets they, who come and go at bidding of vast formless things that shift the scenery to and fro, flapping from out their condor wings invisible woe. That motley drama, oh, be sure it shall not be forgot, with its phantom chased forevermore by a crowd that sees it not, through a circle that ever returneth into the self-same spot, and much of madness and more of sin and horror the soul of the plot. But see, amid the mimic rout, a crawling shape intrude, a blood-red thing that writhes from out the scenic solitude. It writhes, it writhes with mortal pangs, the mimes become its food, and the seraphs sob at vermin fangs in human gore imbued. Out, out are the lights, out all, and over each quivering form the curtain, a funeral pall, comes down with the rush of a storm, and the angels, all pallid and wan, uprising, unveiling, affirm that the play is the tragedy, man, and its hero, the conqueror, one. That poem, I think, is one of the greatest horror stories ever written. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. It just, it's got beautiful language that guides you through the worst sentiment ever you know that the stupid drama that we're playing out is completely pointless and at the end this horrific monster is just going to devour our flesh the worm said it will eat our dead body yeah yeah poe wasn't a religious man (laughs) that's apparent in that poem but uh yeah he was he wasn't i've just always had such a affection for the conqueror worm yeah it's a really cool poem and i read it when i was fairly young and i think it kind of blew me away a little bit oh totally I was at that age when I read it. I was like, oh, my God. It's the kind of poem that if you're immersed in poetry and in, in the kind of literary world, you go, oh, it's, it seems kind of juvenile now. But when you're young and you read this the first time, it does everything a poem is supposed to do. It's got the language. It's got imagery. It tricks you a little bit. It makes you feel something. It's got kind of a profound statement at the end. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a pretty goddamn great poem. Yep. Well, anyway, after this point, she uh, hears that and she goes, no, no, I don't. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be food for the worm. I I can beat it. My will is strong. And then she dies. I thought that was interesting that the author of this still doesn't want it to be true. She's like, do these things have to be so undeviatingly so, she says. Even in this this poem, which articulates a point of view so well, she still doesn't want to believe in that point of view. I thought it was cool. Yeah. The narrator, after her passing, obviously, he's a wreck. Yeah. A few months later, he does what any good Lovecraftian character would do, and he buys a <laughs> creepy old abbey in England. I think he says it's somewhere way the heck out, too. It's, yeah, it's, he won't say where. He won't be specific for yeah. some reason. And then, of course, uh, which is very unlike Lovecraft, he takes up riding the white horse. He's on the opium. <laughs> yeah, I was. Is it that he, I think he was always on the opium, and he just gets really into his opium now. <laughs> Could be. Yeah, but he's definitely, from here on out, he's high yeah. all the time. Now, this is interesting because at this point, since he's going to be high a lot and doing opium, he becomes an unreliable narrator. Right. So all the stuff that actually happens in this story, we have to kind of think about, well, you know, is this real? Is it not real? Mm-hmm. Keep that in mind as, we're, as we go through this. Right. Now, since he's all really bummed out and in his despair, 
he does what most people do, gets married immediately right away. <laughs> yeah, I wish that there was a little more about his courtship. Yeah, he describes the house that he's moved into very well and how creepy it is. And there's this gigantic, in the bridal chamber, there's this gigantic tapestry with all these monstrous figures on it. And the wind blows through it and makes them move and animates them. I mean, the whole place is really overdone and decadent. And yet somehow he's carried on courtship high the whole time. Yeah. And managed to get a lady? Lady Rowena is her name. Yeah. Yeah, she's nobility. He, I think he makes some comment about how uh, Lygia left him with a lot of money. Yes. And and so he's becomes attractive to nobility because not all nobility is rich. You know, sometimes nobility is looking to make a little extra money. So it might be because of that she married him. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, he freaking just goes out and buys an abbey in England. You, you know, those things aren't cheap. So he talks about his marriage with her and all of these descriptions are sort of dreamlike. And again, he keeps bringing up He's taking the opium, so... Yeah. He's even saying, you know, don't trust me, because I'm on drugs a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but it really does set a mood. Uh, yeah. It, it does a really good job of that. And he's married for about a month. Things aren't going well. He's still uh, super into Lygia, mm -hmm. and Rowena knows it, so she's not really happy in this marriage either. He's even... <laughs> the reason she knows this is because he's running around calling out Lygia's name. You know, like... Crying like, Legia, no. <laughs> so there's no subtlety here with this guy. I think that that's, it was an arranged marriage. She barely knows him. She moved in there. He's just running around high all the time, screaming out this woman's name. She's just <laughs> up there sighing. <laughs> oh, God. What did I do? Another month goes by. So they've been married for about two months. And Rowena starts to get sick. She starts to have this illness. And it happens fast. When she gets sick, she gets fevery. And she starts to kind of see things and hear things. And then she gets a little bit better and she's feeling yeah. pretty good. And then she gets sick again. And it all starts, this sort of happens over and over again. And it looks like it's going to be a chronic disease for her. Post-wife, had she died? No, uh, this is before her death. Um, now, remember Poe married his 13-year-old cousin. Yeah. What was her name? Virginia. Yes. yes. He married her in 1835. And this story was written in 1838, or at least it was published. Mm -hmm. so it was written before then. But she didn't get consumption until 1842. So he was actually fairly well are happily married to her. I just was wondering if, you know, his obsession with beautiful dying or dead women. Right. Came anyway, you know, if it didn't have anything to do with his personal life. Now, Rowena, as she's suffering from her malady, as you said, she's seeing visions. And then once she sees what she thinks like is a strange shadow, some kind of specter. Right. Which crosses between the narrator and the light. Yeah. And he sees it too, or at least thinks he sees it. But yeah. he's like, well... I'm on opium, so who knows what I'm seeing. <laughs> right. Well, she's, to make a long story short, she's going to pass away. She's doing so poorly that they get her tomb ready. He's anticipating it. And so he's with her on this night. She's mm -hmm. dead, we think, at yeah. this point, but we're not sure. So he's, it's at midnight and her body's shrouded and she's wrapped up, which I didn't quite understand why she would be wrapped up if she's still alive. But I guess maybe she's dead and they've accepted it. Yeah, she's dead and they've accepted but they've, it. But he's lying there with the body and every he looks at her and he sees how pale her dead body looks and he keeps mm -hmm. thinking of Lygia. When he thinks of her, her face becomes flush again and he thinks maybe she's moving. Yeah. And then the color goes away and she's not moving and he's like, oh, okay, maybe I'm seeing things. I'm on opium. So <laughs> maybe that's what's happening. But he keeps his vigil and then another hour goes by and it happens again. But this time she, she looks, she's alive a little bit longer and looks like maybe she's taking a breath. Maybe she's moved. Maybe she's alive, undead. Who knows? Or he's high. Right. We're not sure. 
Then again, it happens a third time. But this time, she actually gets up and walks and she's breathing. And so he's freaked out. He doesn't move. He's he's scared stiff. He's paralyzed with fear. For a second, he's doubting that it's Rowena. He's thinking it's Lygia. But Mm -hmm. why would he think that? And this is the end of the story. And this kind of explains why he would think that. The bandage lay heavily about the mouth. But then might it not be the mouth of the breathing Lady of Tremaine? And the cheeks, there were the roses, as in her noon of life. Yes, these might indeed be the fair cheeks of the living Lady of Tremaine. And the chin, with its dimples as in health, might it not be hers? But had she then grown taller since her malady? What inexpressible madness seized me with that thought. One bound and I had reached her feet. Shrinking from my touch, she let fall from her head, unloosened, the ghastly cerements which had confined it, and there streamed forth into the rushing atmosphere of the chamber huge masses of long and disheveled hair. It was blacker than the raven wings of the midnight. And now slowly opened the eyes of the figure which stood before me. Here then, at least, I shrieked aloud, can I never, can I never be mistaken? These are the full and the black and the wild eyes of my lost love, of the lady, of the lady Lygia. One of the things we forgot to mention is that Rowena was blonde and blue-eyed. And she is the lady of Tremaine. Exactly. She's the lady. Yeah. She is transformed into Lygia. Yeah, that's the conclusion. That's the conclusion. So did she really transform? Is this him seeing something did she have some kind of supernatural power that it make that she's able to come back from the dead or maybe he has learned something from Lygia because he talks about kind of being a student of her understanding of the metaphysical that maybe he willed her back through Rowena's body <sighs> it could be any of those things yeah or like you said it could be that it's not real any of it and or maybe his marriage to Rowena was real and the whole Lygia was was not real. Or Lygia was real and he just loved her so much that he married this other woman and and just wanted her to be his old wife so much that he just sees things. I don't know. You know, it could be any of that stuff. Yeah. What I really pull away from it is the fact that you have an ideal in your head of what maybe somebody should be. And then you try to force it on them and that can kill the relationship. And Maybe it could be. Poe doesn't help us out either, because in one of Poe's personal letters, he denies that Lygia was reborn in Rowena's body. But in another letter, he says, oh, no, forget what I said there. (laughs) So he goes back on it and saying Mm -hmm. that he goes, well, maybe it is. So he's kind of keeping it. Poe wants it ambiguous. And he doesn't doesn't want there to be a definite one way or the other, even though he did say in one of his letters that she wasn't actually reborn, that it was probably him seeing it. Well, I think that's the point of it. It's not meant to be taken as, as literal events happening. Now, there's, there was something where I've, I've heard that people have said that this is supposed to be a satire of gothic fiction. Right, because uh, Lygia's, for, you know, they're in Germany when they meet. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the gothic story was very popular in Germany at the time. So he's kind of referencing that. And it is really overboard in the language. Yeah, and he published two other pieces. I don't know how it's pronounced. S-I-O-P-E, Psyop, a fable, and the Psyche of Zenobia, which were... Okay gothic styled satires and those were explicitly satires yeah this might have started in that place but it certainly whether it's a satire or not it doesn't really matter it's great literature i have to disagree that i don't th- i haven't read those other two stories but mm-hmm. this doesn't seem like a satire to me i mean i don't uh, to me it just feels like there's a lot of truth in there and especially the way that you framed it i gotta say i'm really impressed with that and it, it 
it resonates a lot more with me now that you say that, where Lygia never really existed, that she was this idealized woman or man that people mm-hmm. have when they're young and try and shoehorn people that they, real human beings that they meet in their life to be that type of person. I like that idea. I think that's a great <laughs> idea. And I think you're a genius. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Somebody's going to smack me down on that one. I'm sure. Yeah. Probably. We'll get some comments, some real yeah. scholars that are out there that'll say, you guys are idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Which we very well might be. I'm not discounting that idea. What did Lovecraft think about this? We, I think we talked about this when we talked about Fall of the House of Usher because he, uh, yes. he, he groups these in together. But he says specifically, but it is in two of the less openly poetic tales, Lygia and the Fall of the House of Usher, especially the latter, that one finds those very summits of artistry whereby Poe takes his place at the head of the fictional miniaturists. Simple and straightforward in plot, both of these tales owe their supreme magic to the cunning development which appears in the selection and collocation of every least incident. Lygia tells of a first wife of lofty and mysterious origin who, after death, returns through a preternatural force of will to take possession of the body of a second wife, imposing even her physical appearance on the temporary reanimated corpse of the victim at the last moment. Despite a suspicion of prolixity and top-heaviness, the narrative reaches its terrific climax with relentless power. That's exactly it. It's right to say this is poetic, too. This story really gives you more of a feeling than it actually tells you a series of events. Yeah. It's really about the language and about the mood that it creates and the themes that it's kind of bouncing the ball against. Is it all death? You know, I mean, is it? are we all just food for worms, really? I have to say it was a little rough for me to get through the first few pages of this because mm-hmm. uh, I was just waiting for something to happen. And sure. Once I got to The Conqueror Worm, which I love that, it sort of pulled me in. And by the end of it, I was I was really engaged. Generally, I, you know, it's odd because generally I don't listen to fiction. I'm, I, I like to read. Yeah. But this is the kind of story I would say actually lends itself to being listened to just because the language is so pretty. Yeah. If it's read by somebody that knows what they're doing, yeah, like yeah. John Hancock, for example. Well, I don't have too much more to say about this. It is similar to Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, I was glad I read it, though, and I was glad I got that context for Conqueror Worm. It's just a really neat story. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm super into it. And uh, again, if you're somebody sitting down to give this a read, you got to give it a few pages and just understand that it's think of it more of a, as a poem when you're reading this, this and, and not so much prose. Next week, we're doing something that I'm not sure how to pronounce. Is okay. it Felinian? Felinian and Makati's? Bellinian and Makati's. By Proclus. Proclus? I don't know if I'm pronouncing these things either. By Proclus? We'll put a link up so you can read it. Bellinian and... You did find it online, didn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this exists online. You could read this. It's it's fairly short, but next week we're actually having a guest host with us. And he, he is one of our contributors to our Kickstarter for our live show. And fortunately, he knows a lot about this period of time when this story was written. And yeah. Lovecraft mentions this in supernatural horror and literature. And so he's it's the one that selected the story, which is why we can't even pronounce it. Exactly. It's one of the ones that I, it, it, reading over it in supernatural horror and literature, I just kind of let it go by me because uh, mm-hmm. I didn't recognize any of the names. But I'm excited to go into something that I normally wouldn't check out. And having a guy that really knows what he's talking about is going to be exciting. Yeah, for once on the show. We've had other people that know what they're talking about on That's the show. Right. Yeah. Right. So. Well, we're going to have that. And then uh, later on in the month, we're going to release our convention coverage. It's got a lot of people who know what they're talking about. 
yeah. uh, on it. And that's going to be really cool. So it's going to be an informative month here at the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. I want to thank John Hancock once again for his outstanding reading of some Edgar Allan Poe. Thank yes. you so much. And I want to thank our sponsor this week. CryptoCurium.com. Remember to send in your photos and your best Lovecraftian poses, whatever yes. that whatever that means. Whatever that means to you. As long as it's entertaining to us, you yeah. You have a chance to win some cool props, objects, sculptures. They are all of these things. They are none of these things. (laughs) (laughs) I've got the big Cthulhu idol. I've got the Black Pharaoh idol to give away. And if you send in a really good photo, might be yours. Might be yours. And we'll be talking to you next week. For now, I am Chad Pfeiffer. And I'm Chris Lackey. And you've been listening to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast. At hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com.